Anyway, it's great to have you guys here and great to have everybody else here this morning. And if you are a visitor, if it's your first time here this morning, then great to have you with you, uh, with us. John and Hillary kindly let me have access to their wedding uh, album this week. And here's a... Ah, that's just the... That's great. It's good. It's good. What a fantastic picture from 40 years ago today. Whoa. I bet you didn't imagine 40 years ago today. Well, who... What did you imagine? Who knows? Um, Don't they look amazing, though? Not a day older... Not a day older, John. Take all that, that comments about the, the grey. Yeah. Not a day older. And it really is fantastic as your church family to be able to celebrate and be part of celebrating your 40th wedding anniversary today, as, as a well, obviously, as the baptism. Not every couple, sadly, makes it to 40 years. And so it's fantastic so that we can celebrate with you guys here today that you have and to be able to celebrate your ongoing marriage. We should celebrate marriage in general. That's a good thing to do. And we should definitely celebrate this marriage. 40 years old today. Fantastic. Marriage is an amazing, fantastic invention of God. It's not something that society invented or can define or can alter. The Bible starts with a human marriage. Right back there in the beginning of the Bible, we start with a human marriage. Marriage was given to humanity by God right at the beginning of time when he created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. The Bible starts with the very first marriage, a marriage of one, of one man to one woman. The very first man married to the very first woman. By the way, there's uh, outlines on your seats if you want to use those. They're there with all the verses on, but they'll all be up on the screen as well for us. And if we go right back to Genesis, we read this in Genesis 2, verses 20 to 24. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So the very first woman, Eve, was created by God by taking a rib right there from Adam's side. And then as they were married, they were joined back together again. In marriage, and God created marriage for and created humanity as male and female. And in marriage, we see this fantastic and this amazing joining together of two different people who, according to the Bible, become one person as they become married one male, one female, different to each other, but also complementary to each other. And as they're joined together in marriage, they become one flesh again. And marriage is one of the key building blocks of society. When marriages flourish, societies flourish. When marriages uh, have problems, when marriages go wrong, and, and sadly sometimes they do, the family suffers, and then the wider society also suffers. And that's one of the reasons why marriage and, and marriages are so important and should be celebrated and protected and supported by the state and um, by the church and by society in general. As we read through the Bible, we see that God uses the picture of physical human marriage to describe the relationship between himself and, in the Old Testament, his people Israel. He uses the language of marriage and of the sexual relationship that exists within marriage to teach us about the relationship between himself and the people of Israel. And when, for instance, the nation of Israel often turned their their backs on God, God uses the picture of unfaithfulness 
the language of adultery, to describe their behavior. They've turned their backs. They've been unfaithful to him. When we get to the New Testament of the Bible, God continues to use this picture of human marriage to teach us about the relationship between himself, between Jesus and the church. The church is all of those who throughout history have trusted in Jesus. The word church literally means God's gathered people assembled together. So the church is all of those who throughout history God has called together who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. Church isn't a building. We often say, I'm going to church, that's fine, but this is not church. This is just a building in which a church meets. The people are the church, the assembled, gathered people of God. And the universal church is all of those who throughout history and all across the world are the gathered people of God. And and this morning, and right across the world this morning, there'll be millions of people gathering in local churches like this, all part of the universal church. A local church, this local gathering of God's people, people who've trusted in Jesus, this is a local church, Regent Christian Fellowship. And according to the New Testament of the Bible, the church is described as the bride of Christ. The church, all these people who throughout history have trusted in Jesus, are described and referred to as the bride of Christ. God uses the picture of physical human marriage to describe and teach us about this amazing relationship, this spiritual marriage between Jesus and all those who throughout history have trusted in him, the church. And in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul, who was one of the very early church leaders with special authority, and he he wrote lots of the New Testament, when he was writing a letter to uh, Christian husbands and wives about marriage, this is what he said. He says these words, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Paul says to husbands that they're to love their wives in the same kind of way as Jesus loved the church, in a self-sacrificial way, laying down our lives as husbands on a kind of daily basis for the good and for the blessing of our wives. Paul teaches husbands to love their wives in the same kind of way as Jesus did, that he laid down his life for those who would then go on to trust in him. And in the fantastic photograph we saw of John and Hillary earlier, Hillary was wearing a white wedding dress, and that's partly because white symbolizes purity, and she was a beautiful bride. And, and, and using the picture or the imagery of human marriages, these verses describe Jesus as dressing the church in white, like a radiant and a beautiful bride, A bride without any flaw, a bride without any fault, without any blemish. A perfect, beautiful bride. Now, I don't know the whole story behind John and Hillary and how they got together. Maybe one day we'll we'll, we'll hear that from you, John. Um, But, you know, often in a human relationship, the man has to kind of pursue the the lady he would like to be his wife. And, And probably for a few of us as guys, we can relate to that. Perhaps the, the lady we're married to didn't always welcome our attention initially and we had to kind of you know, pursue them and, and, and be nice and, and all that kind of stuff. And John, I don't know if that happened with you. Maybe it was the other way around. I, I don't know. Hillary shaking her head or, or nodding. Yeah, maybe that was. But there's that often, isn't there, in relationships, particularly the man perhaps pursuing and, and wooing and, and trying to get the attention and pursuing the woman he wants to marry. And that picture of a man setting his sights on a lady and, 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 and wanting to make her his wife 
and pursuing her and winning over her to be his wife it is a picture of something much greater and something much more profound. Because in a similar way, Jesus set his sights on us. Jesus sets his sights on you and me. And he pursued us, even though we rejected him over and over. For some of us, it might have been many years of, of kind of rejecting him and turning away from him. Some of us, perhaps it was at, at a much younger age. But Jesus pursues us. And in order for Jesus to be able to dress us uh, in white and, and present us as this pure, holy bride, Jesus had to lay down his life for us first. The Bible teaches us that every single human being that has ever lived, with the exception of Jesus, is a sinner. And sin, as, as Rob was saying earlier, is simply living our way rather than living God's way. It's about turning our back on God and doing it our way. And so Jesus came to earth and he demonstrated his love for us. By dying in our place on the cross. There's a great verse in Romans 5. It says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not just kind of writing a Valentine's card or sending a nice romantic text. Jesus didn't just say, I love you. He actually came and demonstrated it and proved it by laying his life down in the greatest act of sacrificial service that has ever existed. And by doing that, by Jesus becoming that perfect substitute sacrifice for us there on the cross, if we put our faith and trust in who Jesus is and what he's done there in taking the wrath of God against our sins, we can be declared to be pure and holy and perfect and dressed in white and made pure, ready for this amazing eternal relationship with God through Jesus. And so using this picture of human marriage, the Bible describes all those that have collectively together put their faith and trust in Jesus as Jesus' bride, the bride of Christ. A bride that Jesus loved, a, a bride that Jesus pursued, a, a bride that Jesus laid his life down sacrificially for, and then made holy and made it perfect and brought to himself to begin an eternal, amazing relationship with. The Bible starts with a physical human marriage between one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. And the Bible ends with this spiritual marriage between Jesus and the church. Jesus is the groom in this kind of picture and the church is his bride. That's the, the imagery that the Bible uses, the pictures that it uses. And if we go right to the very last few pages of the last book in the Bible, Revelation, we get a preview, a little kind of glimpse into what will happen when Jesus meets his bride face to face. The book of Revelation is a vision that Jesus gave to John. John was one of the other early church leaders alongside Paul. And Jesus gives John this vision, a revelation, a revealing of what is going to happen in the future, before Jesus returns, when Jesus returns, and after Jesus returns. And it's a book that can be a little bit confusing because it's full of picture language, but the picture language is there for us so that we can relate to it and perhaps understand it in a way that we wouldn't otherwise do. It's full of picture language like human marriage that God uses to teach us something bigger and greater, something deeper that's going on. And Revelation 19 verses 6 to 9, right towards the end of the Bible, God uses again this picture language of, of a wedding to teach us about what will happen when Jesus meets all those who throughout history have put their faith and trust in him. This is what it says in verse 6 of Revelation 9. 
15. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb, that's referring to Jesus, the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride, that's the church, that's you and me if we trusted in Jesus, his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So the Apostle John is given this amazing vision by Jesus of a wedding where Jesus is like the groom and the church is effectively his bride. And there's an amazing marriage supper, just as you normally have a marriage ceremony, then you go off and you have this amazing big meal and you celebrate. There's this marriage supper that takes place in this vision that that Jesus gives John. Jesus is often referred in the Bible to, uh, to as being the Lamb. And that's because uh, under the Jewish system, the, the, the religious system that God had given to his people in the Old Testament, lambs were often sacrificed in the temple to deal with people's sins. And so when Jesus comes, Jesus lays his life down in this once-for-all act to deal with sin once and for all. So the Bible calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Not just a lamb, but the lamb, the great sacrifice. And those who've put their faith and trust in Jesus have been made spotless, they've been made holy by what Jesus, the Lamb of God, did there on the cross. And when we trust in Jesus, he forgives us, he takes away our sins, he makes us holy. And God now views us as being as perfect and as holy as Jesus. Jesus makes us his beautiful bride. So the Lamb in this vision is Jesus. And the bride is the church, then the church is all of those who throughout history have put their faith and trust in him. The Bible starts with a marriage, physical human marriage between one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. And the Bible ends with a marriage, a spiritual marriage between Jesus and the church. And this concept of marriage runs right through the Bible, starting with a physical one and ending with this most amazing marriage. And every human marriage that ever takes place, whether the people realise it or not, whether the couple acknowledge it or not, is meant to be a picture of the great marriage between Jesus and his bride, the church. It's been fantastic this morning to celebrate with John and Hilary as they've reached their 40th wedding anniversary. And God willing, we'll do the same in 10 years' time for the 50th and, and so on. You know, but this celebration isn't just a celebration of their marriage And of the last 40 years, as amazing as they are and as amazing that marriage has no doubt been and and we pray will continue to be. In celebrating 40 years of marriage, we're actually celebrating something deeper and something bigger and something greater. We're celebrating the eternal marriage of Jesus and of his bride, of Jesus and the church. And, And that's why it's good to celebrate marriages. It's always good to celebrate marriages. But we shouldn't forget that those marriages themselves are actually a picture of something even better and even greater that is one day going to happen. We're celebrating the eternal marriage. Every human marriage is meant to be a living, walking example that points us forward to the greatest marriage that will ever take place. The marriage between Jesus and his people, the bride and the lamb. Human marriages do sometimes sadly fail. And even those that don't will eventually come to an end, won't they? When one or, or the other of the uh, couple will die, we, we say in our uh, uh, vows, until death do us part. 
So even the best of marriages will eventually end. But the marriage of Jesus and his bride, the church, will last forever. And Revelation 21, we read these words as the Apostle John continues to get this vision that Jesus gives to him of what will happen in the end times. And this is what we say, this is what we read. One of the seven angels said to me, this is to John, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He's talking about the church and he's talking about Jesus. I will show you the bride, the wife and of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. And this is where it gets a little bit confusing sometimes in the Bible, in Revelation. Not only does the Bible in general and in the book of Revelation in particular use this picture of, a, of marriage to teach us about Jesus, the Lamb, and his bride, the church. It also uses this picture, this kind of imagery of a great city to teach us something about what the church will be, what we will be in heaven. And we have a physical city of Jerusalem, which is a picture of a new spiritual heavenly city which is eternal. The angel here tells John that he's going to show him the, the bride, the wife of the lamb, and then what he shows him is a city. A bit confusing, he's using two different sets of images. And the bride is now a city in this vision that John has. And in these verses, the church, all those who throughout history have trusted in Jesus, is not only described now as Jesus' bride, now the, the kind of image of a holy spiritual city, the new Jerusalem is used to try to teach us something about what we will be like when we see Jesus. Physical Jerusalem in the Bible was the home of the temple where God's presence in the Old Testament was most experienced by those who trusted in him and worshipped him. And in this vision that, that Jesus gives to John, the physical Jerusalem and the physical temple has been replaced by a new spiritual city where God lives now. And, and that new spiritual city is the bride of the Lamb. It's God's people, God living right at the center of his people. And God comes to live right at the center of the city. In other words, God will live right at the center of all those who've trusted in Jesus as he gathers them together. And because God's going to live with his people and he's going to live there right at the center of this spiritual city, if you like, the church here is described as shining with the glory of God. Newcastle is a wonderful city, certainly a close second as being the holy city, but not quite. But I love, you know, driving over the Tyne Bridge at night, you come back into the city and you see all the lights and you see the Tyne Bridges and the quayside it up. But can you imagine a city where God lives and dwells that goes on forever? You wouldn't need any artificial lights. You wouldn't need any lights at, at night because God's glory is the light. And it's God's glory, God's presence right in the middle of his people that lights it all up. And so Jesus uses this kind of imagery of a city with God right at the, at the, at the center to teach us something of what it will be like when finally his people meet him face to face. And, and if we skip back a few verses to the beginning of Revelation 21, we read these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. 
Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So the church, all those throughout history who've trusted in Jesus, again are described as a city coming down, this time from heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Amazing kind of imagery. And it's Jesus that's made his bride beautiful. In dying for us, in dying for his people, Jesus has removed all of our sins and he's made us perfect and he's made us spotless and he's made us holy and he's made us beautiful. And just as a, a groom looks into the eyes of his beautiful bride and is, and is kind of lost in love for his bride, so when Jesus sees us, he will see his bride presented to himself, beautiful and radiant, a work that he has done for us. And of course, today Hillary's been baptised. And she's done that and, and as a physical demonstration and action that in the past she has put her faith and trust in Jesus, that she is part of this worldwide group of people that love Jesus. And, but by being baptized today, she's declared, uh, along with millions of others throughout history, throughout the world, that she has put her faith and trust in Jesus, although that for her was some time ago. But she's, by trusting in Jesus and then kind of acting this out this, this morning by being baptized, that she's joined herself with Jesus, with his death, with his burial, with his resurrection, just as Jesus died, was buried and rose again. So she too, through her faith in Jesus, has died to her old life, has buried her old life, and has begun a new eternal life in and through Jesus. So Hillary is part of the church through faith in Christ. All those who throughout history have put their faith and trust in Jesus. Hillary is part of what the Bible calls the bride of Christ, that group of people that Jesus loved and laid his life down for. And in a little bit, uh, John and Hillary are going to come up and formally become part of this church. They're part of the universal church. They're going to formally become part of this church, this local gathering of people that have put their faith and trust in him. Church is not only described as being the bride of Christ, it's also described in these verses as being the holy city, the new Jerusalem where God will live and where God will dwell. And Revelation is full of picture language and it's not always clear exactly what the picture language is describing will actually be or look like. In these verses we are told that God is going to create a new heaven, God is going to create a new earth and God is going to live right at the heart of his people. We don't know exactly what that will look like. These verses are full of picture language. We mustn't forget that. But, but what we can say is that as those who throughout history, who have trusted in Jesus, meet with Jesus face to face when he comes to rule and reign and create a new heaven and a new earth, just as a bride meets with her groom, it will be an amazing and a phenomenal moment. We don't know exactly what eternity with Jesus will look like for us. The Bible doesn't tell us too much about it. And maybe that's because actually if we knew, we wouldn't be able to handle or cope with living on earth because earth would just be so horrendous with the knowledge that we had of eternity. Actually, the Bible tells us more about hell, the place where all those who reject Jesus uh, and choose not to put their faith in him and trust in him, it's where those people spend eternity. The Bible tells us that hell is a real place where there'll be nothing good and where there'll be eternal darkness and isolation and separation for, uh, and suffering and, and, and punishment for sin. But what these verses here in Revelation 21 do tell us is this, is that if we've trusted in Jesus, then we'll be united with Jesus and then we will live with God forever. There'll be no more sadness. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more death. And all of this is because there'll be no more sin. Because sin will have been dealt with and removed. 
I don't know about you, but I've had enough of sin. I've had enough of sin in my own life. I've had enough of sin in other people's lives and in this world. I've had enough of sadness. I've had enough of pain and illness. And I've had enough of seeing people die. I've had enough of sin. I'm sick of sin. It's difficult to imagine what heaven will be like. Partly, I think, because as I said, if we really knew what heaven was like, we wouldn't be able to handle living on this earth any longer. The Bible doesn't tell us too much, but what we do know is that sin... And everything that sin causes will be absent from heaven. I read these words in a book by Max Lucado. I've, I've quoted this before, but as Max Lucado tries to capture something of what heaven will be like, this is what he writes. Because of sin, you've snapped at the ones you love and argued with the ones you cherish. You have felt ashamed, guilty, bitter. You have ulcers, sleepless nights, cloudy days, and a pain in the neck. But you won't have these in heaven. Because of sin, the young are abused and the elderly forgotten. Because of sin, God is cursed and drugs are worshipped. Because of sin, the poor have less and the affluent want more. Because of sin, babies have no daddies and husbands have no wives. But in heaven, sin will have no power. In fact, sin will have no presence. There will be no sin. Sin has sired a thousand heartaches and broken a million promises. Your addiction can be traced back to sin. Your mistrust, your pride, your greed can be traced back to sin. Bigotry, robbery, adultery, all because of sin. But in heaven, all of this will end. Can you imagine a world without sin? If so, you can imagine heaven. What a wonderful picture of a little insight into what heaven will be like. To be with Jesus forever. Jesus right there at the center, our focus for all eternity, the one we will look at for all eternity, and no more sin, and no more sadness, and no more pain, and no more death. I don't know what struggles you're dealing with right now in your life, maybe sadness, maybe physical or emotional pain, relationship problems, mourning, death, relationship breakdown, illness, temptations, could go on and on. In heaven, all of those things will be gone. Isn't that great to know? In heaven, no sin. And Jesus there at the center. Using this picture and imagery of human marriage to teach us something about the relationship between Jesus and the church, we read these words right at the end of Revelation. This is what it says. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. It's lovely, isn't it, when you receive a, a wedding invitation, or maybe not always, it kind of depends on who's inviting you, but anyway, uh, it's generally lovely when you receive a wedding invitation. And in these verses, there's an invitation for everybody, for everyone to not only attend the wedding, but actually to be part of the wedding, to be part of the bride, to be the bride. The Holy Spirit and the bride, the church, says come. Come and be part of this great wedding, of this great marriage between Jesus and the church, between Jesus and all those who've put their faith and trust in him. And this morning, if you've not yet accepted that invitation to be part of this great event at the end of time, this great heavenly marriage between Jesus and the church, then can I encourage you to do that today? Jesus is pursuing you. Just as a man pursues the woman he loves with the hope that she will one day become his bride.
Jesus has been pursuing you since you were born. He went all the way to the cross to prove how much he loves you. And he laid down his life so that your sins could be dealt with and that you could be made clean and could become part of that wonderful, pure bride of Christ. He's demonstrated his love for you in that whilst you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. So why not accept his great proposal? Come and be part of his bride, of his people that he loves. And as you do so, if you do so, you'll receive the free gift of what Jesus calls the water of life. Maybe this morning you're part of that great family, you are part of that church, but maybe you've wandered away from God a little bit, you've wandered away from Jesus and been unfaithful, spiritually unfaithful, just like a man or a woman can be unfaithful in a physical marriage. I encourage you this morning, Jesus is that groom who stands with his arms open wide and just says, come back, come back to me and just know and feel and accept my love. I love you. Come back to me. Don't stay away from Jesus. We're going to sing in a moment a great old hymn, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean. And uh, the last verse says this, When we hear the final trumpet and the church is taken home, we will bring our praise and worship to the Lamb and Him alone. At the marriage supper seated, we His blood-bought bride shall be. In his presence, there remaining, then for all eternity. It's my 25th anniversary, a week on Tuesday, and I wrote those last two verses for our wedding. There were only two verses originally in this hymn. It needed two more verses. And so I wrote those verses for our wedding. So Claire will probably be watching at home on Zoom, which is away in Devon. But when we hear the final trumpet and the church is taken home, we will bring our praise and worship to the Lamb and him alone at the marriage supper seated. We, his blood-bought bride, shall be in his presence then for remaining, then for all eternity. I'm going to pray, and then the band are going to lead us, and then Paul will come up one more time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning that you are that, that, that wonderful groom who loves his bride and has pursued us. You laid down your life for us. You gave yourself completely to buy us, to set us free from sin, to clean us, to cleanse us, to make us holy and make us right to be your bride. We praise you for that. And we thank you for marriage. We thank you for John and Hillary's marriage. We thank you for the fact that it's a 40-year picture of the great marriage that we await at the end of time. Thank you that one day, if we know and love you, we'll be with you forever. And Lord, we realize what we're dealing with is imagery and pictures and we don't fully understand it all. But we thank you for this little glimpse into what it will be like to be with you. And no more sin, no more pain, no more crying, no more sorrow. To be with Jesus forever. And so this morning we worship you. We praise you. We give you all the glory. We praise you for your love to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.